I have a really interesting guest with me today. He is, uh, he's a fellow police officer. He's a police trainer. We've known each other for decades, but he is so much more. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's a PhD and uh, he's just an absolute expert in our field. And I wanted to bring him on today because I thought his expertise would help answer so many of the questions that so many of us have about police use of force and, and police training. Roy Bedard, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So let, let's get right into it. We're, there is so much talk about police use of force and, and uh, you know, m much of it negative. You know, why, why can't cops shoot a gun out of somebody's hand? And why do we have to use deadly force on somebody with an edge weapon? And, and uh, um, how much time are we spending training? There's so many things. Let's get right into that. And why, why is there so much talk about police use of force? Well, I think it's because there's more attention called to it. Um, you know, I mean, I, very negative um, consequences in society tend to attract attention, and they should. And there were times where, you know, those things were, I think, relegated to just simple discussion around the water cooler. But today we have them on video, so we can not only talk about it, but we can analyze it, even if we don't know what we're looking at. And so I think as people sit around analyzing, um, in particular with uh, hindsight or confirmation bias usually underpinning most of the theories that people come up with. Um, it sort of exacerbates some of the problems that we're seeing in the field and um, takes on you know legs of its own. And so um, we are really dealing with an information society. We knew this was coming. Um, some of it good, by the way. I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad, but these are the somewhat negative consequences for law enforcement, I think, that are the fallout of people um, being, it, quite frankly, intrigued by law enforcement and, and what we do and only capturing really the negative stuff. Why do you think people are so fascinated with American law enforcement? Well, I think it's interesting. Um, as you know, um, I'm involved in the area of television production in which we've tried to show law enforcement in a very real way, but in a very moderate way. We show the good with the bad. And um, I think those um, productions have helped law enforcement because Americans come to understand precisely how difficult a job it is. But because people are their own producers and they don't have the discipline, if you will, of showing a complete story, but really just a very small segment of a story and usually a very negative one, um, it sort of jades the process, but it is more exciting. I mean, let's face it, you know, some people sit around watching NASCAR waiting for a crash to happen. That's the whole purpose of being there, right? Um, and I would submit to you that a lot of Americans may perhaps feel that way about law enforcement. I know as a street officer, you've experienced this, it's difficult to pull into a neighborhood with the idea to get out and wave and shake hands and not have somebody run up to you and say, what's wrong? What's going on? Did something happen? Because they're curious about that. That it's far more interesting. If you say to them, you know, I'm just here saying hi and letting you know that I'm in the neighborhood. It's just such a turnoff. You know, I mean, there's just nothing exciting happening. So I think the attraction to law enforcement, um, as it always has been, it has driven some of the earliest TV shows, the, the cops and doctors, where anywhere the tragedy can happen. Um, Americans like to follow that. They want to be right on the, you know, on the, on the cutting edge of knowing precisely what went wrong. And so I think we'll always be a magnet for that type of attention. And now we, we live in a world where every Facebook and Twitter expert, you know, looks at police use of force, sometimes within, you know, an hour of it happening. And I mean, in fact, you talked about 
uh, implicit bias, or uh, I'm sorry, confirmation bias, you know, where everybody can look at our situation that we were involved in and say, well, the co- you know, obviously the cops should have done that. They should have done that. Um, how frustrating is that for you as a, you're, you're a trainer and you're also a, a human performance scientist, if you will. Uh, talk about that and some of your frustrations with what we're seeing currently. So I think what's frustration is, is, the, is this notion of reasonableness, right? So there, when you try to tease apart subjective reasonableness, which all of us have, and objective reasonableness, which is really unique to a profession, these are people that have to follow policies that are trained in a particular way. They have a particular skill set. They're operating from a perspective and a perception that other people simply don't share, don't have. Why would they? They've never experienced anything like that. So the objective standards of law enforcement, which is what I'm answerable to as a scientist and as a expert in the area that has to testify to it, is often offset by the subjective reasonableness, the argument, if you will, of an individual who just simply thinks they know better without the benefit, as I said, of policy directives and training considerations and things like that. So um, again, I don't know the the purpose I think of these TV shows that we did was to try to um, uh, uh, get folks to understand that law enforcement is in fact a model. It's a, and of course it always can become a better model. There's always room for improvement, but it is a model. And I would submit to you today, we've done a pretty good job of that. There is, even though we are a decentralized law enforcement system here in the United States, there is no actual such thing as a national standard. There's no national group running law enforcement. And by the way, I think Americans want it that way. Um, We've seen some terrible things happen when law enforcement gets nationalized um, throughout history. But we have done a pretty good job of being able to say, this is the way that law enforcement officers do things coast to coast. If you go to New York, for example, and you watch a high risk felony takedown of an automobile, and you go to California and watch the same thing. They look the same. They've never trained together. So the national standard that comes from things like um, uh, sort of interacting with each other, conferences, right? Um, Model policies from groups like the International Association of Chiefs of Police and the National Sheriff's Association. They've come to sort of an agreement and this is the way things ought to be done in an objectively reasonable way. And so we're all kind of complying with that in our own bubble, but of course, On the outside, if you're not part of that world, you're um, relying totally on subjective reasonableness. And it might seem to you that things shouldn't happen that way in a tragic world, but it is the the mark of an imperfect society that bad things happen. And and I, I, I submit will always happen to some degree. And law enforcement spends a lot of time, a lot of effort and a lot of money trying to close the window on bad things happening. And I think we've done a very, very good job of doing it. But as you know, um, because of, once again, social media and television and media in general, that, that little space that we leave open is the one that is, is shown to everyone all the time. And it actually is very misleading as to, I think, the depth of the problem that uh, many people think that law enforcement um, has in America. But we also need to address criminality, don't we? We do. I think the idea of reform, uh, the, the biggest problem with the concept of reform is that most people don't even understand how law enforcement is formed. So to reform it 
you really have to have a baseline. And I, and I would submit that anyone who really was interested in reform should start there with trying to understand what it is that law enforcement officers are commissioned to do and to try to understand how best to do it. And there are programs for that. We have ride-along programs. Um, we have uh, citizen police academies. You know, We have um, obviously universities with criminologists that can talk to folks about how things are actually done. Um, as far as reform goes, I would submit to you that we should always be reforming ourselves for a lot of different reasons. First of all, I think society is always a moving target. It never stays in one place very long. Technology changes all the time. Uh, every, every time a legislative uh, meeting is had, some new law comes out of it, which affects our discipline. Um, certainly when Congress meets together and convenes on a larger scale, it can change um, and send radical waves through law enforcement and the way things are done when you talk about things like chokeholds, for example. Um, so I'm not opposed to police reform as long as we're on the same page about what we're talking about. Um, to round out your question, when it comes to police reform, we in law enforcement do understand that law enforcement sometimes has to take up for um, issues and problems that the people we police can't take up for themselves when you start getting into, for, for example, mental illness, right? You have an individual that perhaps doesn't have the capacity for what we'll call proper behavior. And law enforcement officers have to be aware of that. So they, they can't treat all people as a one size fits all. So now we start getting into areas of critical thinking. What am I dealing with here? Is this different than what I dealt from yesterday? It looks similar, but why is it different? And if it is different, what should I do differently about that? And so I think there's a lot of space in law enforcement for us to keep talking about that. And frankly, I think, you know, we, we may have to round out this conversation by talking about the next level of law enforcement, which is really cognitive training, because we're very good at skill-based training, but the cognitive training that we do, I'll talk a little bit about that if you want to direct me towards that question, is I think really in its infancy in our business and in most businesses, frankly, teaching people how to think um, is uh, much, much different than teaching people what to think. And in our business, I think as a paramilitary organization at our root, we have done a lot of teaching what to think. And that has sort of eliminated our, in some respects, our critical thinking capacities. Well, and let's talk about that because we're dealing with, you know, you send an average cop out there with all kinds of tools that he or she has to know how to use and they've got to know how to deal with all, all kinds of situations, everything from taking a good police report to delivering a baby to dealing with a mentally ill subject. And, uh, and, and yet the, and the profession has changed so much since you and I went to the police academy, you know, whatever, 40 years ago. Um, but, but talk about that cognitive processes when we're talking about the performance of a, a, an average police officer. So I'm a little passionate about this. This is sort of, I think, you know, I grew up on the mats and I like hands-on stuff. I like getting out on the range and I like wrestling with, you know, new recruits and teaching them arrest tactics and skills. And as I said, I think over the years, we've become very, very good at that. Um, but this new dimension, uh, my PhD is in human performance under stress. And so I really focus on how we operate in the kind of conditions that are often novel, things we've never seen before, things we've never expected, perhaps things that most people will never see. And so how does the brain work under those given circumstances? So it takes me back to rethinking the way that we think about cognition 
typically in law enforcement, and it may be a surprise to some people to hear this, we do a lot of rote training. So for example, when we're making cognitive decisions, we do um, what's what we used to call a shoot, no shoot scenario. We'd stand in front of a screen, be presented with a live scenario, and we'd make decisions on whether or not, um, or how we handled that event, whether or not we shot, we didn't shot, we used pepper spray, we didn't use pepper spray. Um, we used de-escalating commands through verbal. And what was happening the entire time was the process of correction was going on behind us by our senior officer which meant we were really conforming to what I'll call an older way of doing things. Well, eventually, when each instructor is teaching each new student, there's no movement progressively to a new place of thinking about things because we're all in line with the older instructor's way of doing things. So in law enforcement, it's often said, well, it, it, we joke about it, that you know some trainers say, well, we do it this way because we've always done it that way. But it turns out the way we train it actually reinforces that. So we have to think about thinking and how we should think differently. And so I think the best way to think about that is in terms of some of the, the mental uh, substrates and cognates that, that contribute to how we think. How do we strengthen, for example, neural networks? How do we make our brains stronger? How do we become more cognitively flexible? Because if we are able to make our brain stronger, think about it like a mental gymnasium. Think about it, for example, and again, we're very good at this. If you go into a gymnasium, not only do we know how to make you stronger, but we know how to measure that strength, right? If we, if we want to make your arms bigger, we put you on curls and we recruit muscle fiber and we come back weeks from now and we measure and we see progress and we say, wow, you're getting stronger. And in fact, you are getting stronger because we can change the weight load. We can now see that what you couldn't have done a month ago, you now can do. You can do more of it and you can do it for a longer period of time, right? So our brains don't really, we don't have anything like that. We don't really have brain measurements like that, where you can do an intervention, for example, like a, a set of curls or a bench press or squatting, um, where you inject an intervention and then come back and try to measure its effects. There's nothing quite like that. So I'm on the search for that. I'm on the search for different technologies today that are able to train our brains to become stronger. And so when you look at things like criterion validation, if you're going to do a, a PAT test, and I'm, I know I'm a little all over the board here, but I think it's, it's easier to think about it like this. When you do PAT testing, physical assessment testing, you don't really go out and make arrests and examine whether or not the officer is capable. You do things like a series of push-ups, a one and a half mile run, an obstacle course. Arguably, those things are not law enforcement. But we know that the criteria val validation tells us that if you can do these things to this degree, you will be a better cop for it because of transference. Those things transfer into job-related tasks, right? right? We don't have anything like that mentally. We don't have anything that we can actually point to and say, well, if you get on this cognitive machine, if you get on this cognitive apparatus and you are capable of doing these certain things, then we know that you'll be a better cop coming out because you've been validated as a consequence of being able to pass these un somewhat unrelated cognitive tasks, right? And so we're in a very much a period of infancy. I think a lot of people have heard of, uh, for example, things like Lumosity, which we're um, purporting to do brain strengthening. And so you get on your phone and you play, I don't know, tic-tac-toe or a variety of different cognitive right. games. 
And in theory, it made your brain stronger and made you a better person. Well, unfortunately, the studies show that that's probably not true. It turns out if you play tic-tac-toe all day, you get really good at tic-tac-toe. Doesn't make you a better driver. Doesn't make you necessarily more situationally aware. So, but it's on the right track. Their heart's in the right place. They're talking about what I'm talking about. They're talking about developing some type of cognitive apparatus to strengthen brain power because we know something about neuroplasticity today that we didn't know even a couple decades ago. And that, first of all, is that it occurs that we can build neural networks and they can become stronger and more reinforced by the things that we do. So what we want to do is we want to start um, really researching. And I say we don't have any of those things. I, it's not that we have it. We don't have any. We just haven't found them for law enforcement. Perhaps they exist in, in other domains. Like, for example, they might exist in clinical work. If you're working with Alzheimer's patients who are actually suffering some type of cognitive um, deterioration, perhaps there's machines out there that strengthen that that can be applied to people who are well. Right. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years is run around trying to find these types of things and really focusing on the research behind them to see if there's um, some uh, ability for us, if not to find something, then to develop something for our own. In a, in a perfect law enforcement world, how much training time would you want an average cop to have? Well, in a perfect world, um, we would probably uh, have 20% of our, our shift spent training. Um, so, I mean, you can actually calculate that in terms of hours. We do nowhere near that. I can tell you part of the reason it's not because agencies don't think training is important. It's because it's, it's very expensive, right? So not only is it expensive to put on training, but it's expensive to cover training. So for every officer that's in training, there is another officer that has to be pulled off shift to cover their spot or pulled from their day off to have to cover their spot. So it, it becomes a real, um, problem for, for administrators, I think, to try to put together good, training schedules where law enforcement officers are like the military are constantly reinforced in training, you know, in other agencies like the fire department, I think does a lot of training. They, of course, they have a lot more downtime. They're reactive where law enforcement is proactive. We, you know, when, when we don't have anything to do, we get out and we do, we still are patrolling the streets and looking for things and trying to keep crime down rather than just respond to it. So we're, we're sort of um, pushed back on our heels in terms of time. We, there's never a free moment in, in the day of a law enforcement officer. Uh, it can, it can be said. Um, but I would think that if you dedicated about 20, 20% of your time in law enforcement to training, either in block style study, but more importantly, in daily training, I think we would be better off for it. Where does human emotion factor into the performance of your average police officer? So it's a, that's really a great question. And I think that's a secondary question. Once we start looking at the rationale of the prefrontal cortex and how to make that stronger, executive function stronger, then we have to start talking about what are the influences on it. And the most primary influence is the limbic system, right? It's this area that controls emotion deep down in the middle of your head. And we know that the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system are different, but they're always talking. And that you want them to talk, by the way. You don't want somebody who's 100% rational and you don't want somebody who's 100% irrational, which is generally what we refer to when we talk about emotions. Those two things have to talk. They have to be regulatory. 
But I think sometimes at the very base of your question, I think it's a selection process. Some of these are um, personality issues when you're talking about emotion and personality is not easy to change. It doesn't change very much according to the research. So the selection process is we have to select people for the right reasons. And I think we stopped doing that a little while ago. Um, we have to have meritorious selection and not selection based on what color you are, what gender you are, how tall you are, how short you are. Those are ridiculous ways of selecting people that you're expecting to do a good job. But when you start looking at emotional IQ, for example, right, the ability for somebody to be able to sustain under stress and under duress, oftentimes is built into the fiber of their system. It can be developed, it can be enhanced. But if it doesn't exist in the very beginning, if somebody just flies off the handle as a matter of their personality, they just don't belong in this job. That doesn't make them bad people, I might add. Um, they're probably very good people, but this isn't the job for them. So it starts there. It starts with selection. Once we get you into the business, then we have to do this process of what we call inoculation. And what we know about stress and about emotion, arousal, what's often referred to as arousal when we're talking about um, performance, human performance, what we know about that is that we can condition it through experience, right? So through temporal experience, if we expose you to more events that are similar to the kind of events that you'll see, we start to develop long-term memory on how to deal with those. And we, and we establish greater what we call coping mechanisms. So we know that when we're faced with challenges that otherwise would arouse a person in a novel situation, law enforcement officers are no longer seeing this as a novel situation because they've seen it before in training, albeit it wasn't real. It was real enough to create solutions. So what happens is the long-term memory, after you start seeing it over and over, you get long-term potentiation. This builds these long-term memories that get stored in files. When it happens in the real world, they get pulled forward, those similar things, your brain sort of gloms onto those similar things and pulls them forward into what we call working memory so that they're available very rapidly for heuristic decision-making, which means that cognitively, we don't have to stop and process. We just sort of, because we've done it before, we react to it. And now what we're doing is we're doing it without the benefit of emotion overriding the process. And there's some neurological features here, but there's also some glandular features that actually slow things down and make us perform worse, right? So we wanna be able to try to remove ourselves in some respect from the emotional component, which may damper the heuristic of cognition. And um, that only can be done through the right kind of training, which we often refer to in our business as inoculation training. Thanks for spending time with us. And if you'd like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. This year, over 50,000 law enforcement officers have been assaulted while on duty. A vast number of these attacks were filmed and uploaded to social media in the pursuit of likes and attention. What they want to do is film you instead of like, what can I do to help this officer? Together, we can change this disturbing trend. If that individual would have hit the right spot, you know, it, it could have been it for me. You know, last time I would have saw my wife, my kids. I'm Mike Solon. Law enforcement officers need your support. If you see an officer under attack, then follow these simple steps in order to help. One, call 911 and give the officer's exact location. Two, ask the officer if you can assist. If the officer accepts, then do whatever you can do to safely help. Three, if the officer declines, then start filming and be a good witness. It's time to stop filming 
and start helping.